Thanks, Brother Gene. Well, I know that we've already established here at first that if you read a meme, then it's second only to Scripture, right? Oh, well, thank you for getting it over here. I appreciate that. Some people treat memes, you know, you read a meme, and that is pretty much uh, like a proverb. So here's one for you today. I read this the other day. Satan's greatest weapon is man's ignorance of God's word. Now, that sounds scriptural, doesn't it? That sounds pretty good. I, I, I like that. Satan's greatest weapon is man's ignorance of God's word. That was written by A.W. Tozer, Christian author, teacher, preacher. Uh, he's the one who, who uh, has said that years and years ago. But I would like to revise it in light of today's context and on our nation's 245th birthday. And here's how I will revise it. Satan's greatest weapon against America is his ignorance to its biblical heritage. Again, Satan's greatest weapon against America is his ignorance to its biblical heritage. Now, have we always been in the right? No. Have we made mistakes? Absolutely. But anytime you get man involved in anything, well, you know, it's, it's going to fall short. The Bible tells us that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And any time that man is involved, you know, we're warring with the flesh, we're warring with the spirit, we're trying to make sense of things, we're going to get our flesh in the way at times, and we certainly have. And if you do a survey of scripture, warning after warning was given to the people of Israel to be careful with that, to not forget the Lord's place in their lives, in their culture, in their nation. And yet we see throughout the Old Testament that that's exactly what Israel did, what Judah did time and time again. The whole purpose of a prophet was that they stood up and said, repent or face the consequences. Get yourself right with God or face the consequences. Well, facing the consequences is what we find taking place and the Old Testament, time and time and time again. There is always a reckoning with God. When you forget God, when you remove God, when you take God out, there will come a reckoning with God. This seems to be the true pandemic that reoccurs over and over time and again. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is Moses warning the Israelites before they take the Jordan, before they cross the Jordan, before they take the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find him saying to them, in fact, he begins it in Deuteronomy and he ends Deuteronomy with these same sayings. And here's what what he writes. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. This begins the cycle that continuously repeats itself 
over and over again in the life of the Hebrews and the Israelites and the Jew and in nation after nation ever since. How do we prevent this cycle from repeating itself? Well, Moses told us in verse 12, do not forget the Lord. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. So what I intend to do this morning (coughs) is read quotes from those who founded and who has led this nation, who organized it, who wrote its original documents, who got it running, who kept it running from both sides of the aisle, whether, whether Democrat or Republican, men who had imperfections, men who may have had sketchy backgrounds or who have made sketchy decisions in life, men that you may or may not respect completely. These men believed in something. They also believed in someone. And far be it from me to equate them with Christ because they weren't. They were not good and they were not pure in every way and neither am I and neither are we. But we recognize that there was a dependence and a belief on Almighty God, the Holy Bible, and Jesus Christ himself. And depending upon the school, this may or may not be something that you've been taught. But here in the church, and especially any church that I pastor, I'm going to make certain that it's understood where we came from. What was the foundation? What was interwoven into our founding documents? What is going to sustain us? As Moses told the Israelites before crossing the Jordan, be careful that you do not forget. And we should not forget. People like Christopher Columbus, who in 1504 wrote this reason for setting out to discover a new land. I was led of the Holy Spirit to carry the message of the gospel to an undiscovered land. The Mayflower Compact, signed by the first pilgrims in 1620, says they came here for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. In the opening phrase of the New England Confederation, it reads, We all came into these parts of America with one and the same end and aim, to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in liberty and peace. And in that document delivered and signed on this date, 1776, It reads, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So who were the men who signed this document? What were their beliefs? Roger Sherman noted as saying, I believe that there is one only living and true God, existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are a revelation from God and a complete rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Benjamin Rush 
The gospel of Jesus Christ describes or prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. Happy they who are enabled to obey them in all situations. Benjamin Franklin, here is my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is in doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental points in all sound religion, and I regard them as you do in whatever sect I meet with them. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals in his religion, as far as he left them to us, is the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. Patrick Henry, known for his give me liberty or give me death speech at the onset of the Revolutionary War, said, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in his last will and testament that's on file at the Brookneal County Courthouse in Virginia, if you read it, you'll see that he left everything to his children, just as most people do. But in the last paragraph, this is what he is noted as writing. I have now given everything I own to my children. There is one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is Christ. Because if they have everything I gave them and don't have Christ, they have nothing. George Washington, first president, in his inaugural address on April the 30th, 1789, said, No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. We ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven cannot be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. And do you know what took place after he was brought into office? He held a two-hour worship service in the halls of Congress, worshiping Almighty God. He's also noted for saying, it is impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. John Adams, second U.S. president, said, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. And he went on to say in observing the 4th of July, It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. John Adams said, this day is a day to worship God and to thank God for our independence. Thomas Jefferson, third U.S. president, said that the reason that Christianity is the best friend of government is because Christianity is the only religion that changes people's hearts. And in a letter to William Canby in 1813, he said, Of all systems of morality, ancient or modern, which have come under my observation, none appear to be so pure as of that of Jesus. I hold the precepts of Jesus as delivered by himself to be the most pure, benevolent, and sublime which have ever been preached to man. 
I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. James Madison, fourth U.S. president, said, Cursed be all that learn that which is contrary to the cross of Christ. James Monroe, fifth president, on November 16, 1818, said, When we view the blessings with which our country has been favored, those which we now enjoy, our attention is irresistibly drawn to the source from whence they flow. Let us then unite in offering our most grateful acknowledgments for these blessings to the divine author of all good. John Quincy Adams, sixth president. It is no slight testimonial both to the merit and worth of Christianity that in all ages since its promulgation, the great mass of those who have risen to eminence by their profound wisdom and integrity have recognized and reverenced Jesus of Nazareth as the son of the living God. Andrew Jackson, seventh president. The Bible is the rock on which this republic rests. As from each of the seven, the first seven presidents of the United States, as, as well as those who, who signed the Declaration of Independence. Let's jump forward to Abraham Lincoln, 16th president. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Ulysses S. Grant, 18th president. Hold fast to the Bible as the anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your hearts and practice them in your lives. To the influence of this book, we are indebted for all the progress made in true civilization. And to this, we must look as our guide in the future. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Theodore Roosevelt, 26th president. To every man who faces life with real desire to do his part in everything, I appeal for a study of the Bible. Herbert Hoover, 31st president. The whole inspiration of our civilization springs from the teachings of Christ and the lessons of the prophets. To read the Bible for these fundamentals is a necessity of American life. Harry S. Truman, 33rd president. The fundamental basis of this nation's law was given to Moses on the mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights come from the teachings we get from Exodus and St. Matthew, from Isaiah and St. Paul. I don't think we emphasize that enough these days. If we don't have the proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in the right of anybody except the state. That was 60 years ago. John F. Kennedy, 35th president, on January 20th, 1961, he said, The world is very different now. For man holds in his mortal hands the, the power to abolish all forms of human poverty and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forebears fought and are still at issue around the globe the belief that the rights of man came not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Ronald Reagan, 40th president. 
The churches of America do not exist by the grace of the state. The churches of America are not mere citizens of the state. The churches of America exist apart. They have their own vantage point, their own authority. Religion is its own realm. It makes its own claims. We establish no religion in this country, nor will we ever. We command no worship. We mandate no belief. But we poison our society when we remove its theological underpinnings. We court corruption when we leave it bereft of belief. And at the 1984 prayer breakfast, he stated, Without God, there is no virtue because there's no prompting of the conscience. Without God, we're mired in the material, that flat world that tells us only what the senses perceive. Without God, there is a coarsening of the society. And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. If we ever forget that we're one nation under God, then we will be a nation gone under. Why go through such quotes? Why is it important to remind ourselves, well, simply stated, America has forgotten where it came from. We have allowed ignorance to lead us away from our true heritage, our foundation, and the one who will truly keep us from falling. Dr. Stephen Lawson says, the death of any nation begins with this rejection of God. No culture can survive without him. And yet that's where I'm afraid we've come. For no matter how much we might tout it or we might state it or we might sing it, no matter how much, what kind of flag we fly, when you take a look at what's being pushed on our culture, on our citizenry, on our freedom, when we see what we are allowing into the very fabric of our culture, we have removed God from it. Deuteronomy 6.12, again, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. And when we make allowances in our own lives, when we make allowances within our families, when we make allowances within our community, we make allowances regarding our laws and our systems that omit and leave out the precepts of the word of God. The very thing that we're doing is telling God we know better. Thankfully, there are reminders in our culture. Church steeples and buildings on every corner. In God we trust, etched on our currency. But at what point does that become an empty motto? Or consider this. I find it interesting that it was a preacher named Francis Bellamy who wrote our Pledge of Allegiance. And what did that good preacher put in there? That we are one nation under God, indivisible. Another preacher, Samuel Smith, wrote the, home, uh, wrote the hymn, My Country, Tis of Thee. 
I want you to listen to the last verse, because we always know the first one, don't we? Our Father's God to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. We have these interwoven, like I said, in the, <coughs> excuse me, in, in different parts of our culture and in, in ways in the songs that we sing and, and we inject them in there. But we must be careful to not let them become empty phrases, empty sentiments. Because it's really easy for me to say that I'm a Christian and then live total opposite. And just as Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. We will know that we are a Christian nation by the same truth. John Leland, another preacher, authored the introduction of the First Amendment to the Constitution, which reads that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. From the beginning, it was established that the government shall not be in control of the church. That's what they saw happening in England and why those first pilgrims left England to go to a new country and to establish a new way of life. It was because of overtaxation and the control of the government over religion. So very early on, it was determined that this government, that the American government, shall not tell the church what it can preach, what it can teach. It will not state that the Bible is illegitimate. It does not have a place in the church. But nowhere have I found a, a, one of those founding fathers say that the faith does not affect the government and its beliefs and its laws and its systems. And I have read from several stating we are we're not grounded on religions, we were grounded on the Christian faith and its principles. We are, we were founded in light of God's word and the precepts of God's word and Christian faith. He is the author, he is the sustainer, and God forbid if we remove Christianity and God's word from our systems. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. What does it look like when you have? Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 22. In 2 Kings chapter 22, if you look at the chapters uh, before, before it, you will see time and time again each of the leaders each of the kings doing quote evil in the eyes of the lord time after time paragraph after paragraph as each king is introduced he did evil in the eyes of the lord and it continued to to describe what type of pagan worship and pagan influence it had on the culture even to the point to where by 2 Kings chapter 22, that the word of God was lost. The holy scriptures, the scrolls, the law of Moses, the word of Moses, all of that had disappeared. It wasn't even there anymore until someone decided to go into a room in the temple 
and dust it. And we find in chapter 22 that the high priest who did all of these sacrifices and stuff out of routine, out of empty religious obligation, he finds the word of God and he gives it to what you could say is like the chief of staff of the, of the new king. Verse 8, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan to read it. How, that, that, that blows my mind that the high priest in the temple of God, I, look what I found. He didn't already know where it was. He didn't already have it. He was already, I mean, he was responsible for everything that took place in the temple. And yet, even within the temple, they had forgotten God. Verse 10, then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it, read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Now jump to uh, chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem... He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and with all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. The king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the pagan priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord and were... And where women did weaving for Ashua. Joshua, uh, I'm sorry, Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba, where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the shrines at the gates, at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which is on the left of the city gate. Although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. And it goes on, verse 12, he pulled down the altars. Time, time again, there was, 
there was a cleansing, there was a reckoning, there was an understanding, there was an act of repentance that took place. When? When the king heard from the word of God something he had never heard of his entire life. The nation's revival stemmed from being in God's word, repenting of their sin, and removing from the nation the abominations and the travesties that led them away from God. And it reminds me of the promise from 2 Chronicles seven fourteen that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and heal their land. In fact, even President Lincoln recognized this trend 160 years ago during his proclamation appointing a national day of fasting on March the 30th, 1863. He wrote that we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. That was 160 years ago. And can we not make the same declaration today? Powerful words from a great man. So what should we do in response? Well, that's up to you individually, for us corporately as a church. And it's the same as what our, the fathers of this nation believed that we seek to honor God, that we stand on the precepts of the word of God, and that our lives and the decisions that we make are in full dedication and in obedience to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Let us find ourselves praying consistently and constantly for the Holy Spirit to grip the hearts of those leaders, those leaders in Congress, those leaders in the White House, even those that you may not respect, they need our prayers. Because Scripture tells us that no person is in power without the Lord's hand. So we need to be committed to fasting and praying for our leaders, praying for our nation, that the Lord would send a spiritual awakening, that he would drop us to our knees. Because I'm afraid that we will see the exact same thing that the Israelites saw. They will have a nation, a nation like Nebuchadnezzar's, 
we will see a nation like that one that will come and force us to our knees. Let us be recommitted as a church to an evangelistic effort on our part. For it is the only way, the only means by which people will come to know the truth. And as Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that truth is found in a person. That truth is Jesus Christ. And whenever we button our lip or we bite our tongue and we, re and we refuse to have that conversation or to talk to that person that we work with or that neighbor of ours that opposes us and our faith or opposes us and our political beliefs or we oppose them, theirs, then we're only propagating the continual furtherance down a road and down a path where God is forgotten. Deuteronomy 6.12 Be careful, nation, that you do not forget God. Pray with me.